I won't read the whole uh, psalm, but I, I will read a little bit more of an extended passage than we usually do. So, so please be patient as we uh, listen to God's word together. Uh, psalm 89, I'll begin reading in verse 1, uh, read a brief portion here, and then, and then go to the second part of the psalm. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then please join me in verse 30. And I'll read to the end of the psalm. If his children, that's speaking of David, if David's children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. At all who pass by, plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we come to these words this morning? We come trusting that they are gifts from you. And sometimes it's difficult to trust that. And and we've, we've heard some disturbing words in the past few moments. And so we ask for your help to continue to trust that these words are from you and that they are good and they that they are in the end words of life. And so would you help us to hear them? 
Would you help us to have an openness to the work of your Holy Spirit as he takes your word and applies it to our hearts and our lives. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we ended our Lessons and Carols service as we always in that service, out on the deck with our candles lit and singing Silent Night. And it's always a a beautiful and a a peaceful moment when we do that. Only, uh, did you you catch what happened last Sunday? As we came to that final a cappella verse of Silent Night, did you catch what happened? An emergency vehicle with uh, sirens or with lights flashing and sirens blaring drove past and interrupted our moment of tranquility, our moment of quiet peace, kind of like this right now. Psalm 89 is like that. Psalm 89 is like Silent Night interrupted by sirens. This psalm starts in stability. It starts in peace. It starts in the flourishing and the prosperity that God was giving his people through David, through King David and his descendants. But then in verse 38, what happens? A siren happens. A siren, a loud, disturbing noise interrupts the tranquility and the peace and the joy, the happiness of this psalm. And where there was peace and stability, there is now confusion and chaos. This psalm is pretty unique in this book. It is not the only psalm that deals with distress. But most of the psalms that deal with distress and loss, they start there. They start with the questions. And then work their way to assured answers and thanksgiving. God has intervened or God certainly will intervene. But that's not the movement of this poem, is it? This poem starts with the assurances. And then it devolves into the questions. It devolves into the confusion and the uncertainty and the pain and the loss. And although there is a brief expression of praise at the end, the the questions are left out there, ringing and unanswered. And what I want to say this morning is that that moment last Sunday night, and and more particularly and more significantly, this poem here in Psalm 89 can help us celebrate Christmas. This disturbing poetry can help us respond to the birth of Jesus because it lowers our expectations. And it raises our expectations. This psalm helps us celebrate Christmas because it lowers our expectation and it raises our expectations. First of all, lowered expectations. At first glance, the pain of this poem 
seems to come from a loss in battle. Right? It seems like God's people, God's king, they have lost a battle. And that's where the pain of Psalm 89 comes from. And, and historians and scholars, they do connect this song to a specific historical event. They, they connect it to the event of Babylon destroying the city of Jerusalem. And, and capturing David's descendant Jehoiachin, the last stutter of a king in Israel, capturing him and taking him off uh, to a far country. They connect it to that historical event. But we need to look a little closer at this poetry. And we need to notice that at the heart of this song isn't military loss. It's relational loss. This is breakup music. How does it start? It starts singing of what? Of love. It starts singing of the steadfast love of God. But where does it end? Verse 49. The loss of that love. God, where is your love? This is breakup music. This is relational breakdown. According to verse 46, the one throughout the Psalms who is called the hiding place is now the one who is hidden from his people. This is a song of relational loss. And what causes that relational breakdown? Wrath. The poet says the primary cause of the breakdown of this relationship between God and his people is God's anger. Now please understand... That God's anger here is not God getting annoyed at socks left on the floor and exploding in capricious rage and storming out of the house. This is God as a husband. Angry at his people, his bride, his wife, who has betrayed him, left him for another man, left him for other gods. Not once, but again and again and again and again over hundreds and hundreds of years. This is God's burning jealousy in response to the betrayal of his people. Now what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with our expectations for Christmas? Well, this psalm, while its language does speak of a specific historical event, its language also speaks of a perpetual situation. The perpetual situation of the world in relationship to God as a result of sin. It speaks of the situation of the world in relationship to God as a result of sin. You see, sin at its heart isn't just breaking the rules. It is rejecting a relationship. Sin at its heart is attempting to replace God as our highest good, our highest authority, our highest desire, our highest place of significance and meaning, and replacing Him with someone or something else. And that's what humanity has done. And so, according to Scripture, beginning in Genesis 3, the world is under God's wrath. 
The creation is under God's anger, His judgment, because the creation has attempted to reject the Creator. And because of that, the world doesn't work the way it should. Because of that, creation doesn't function. It is dysfunctional. It doesn't function the way that it should. And so life in the world often feels like God is hidden. Like His love is absent. To to bring it to a very concrete and a personal application. This situation, this perpetual situation is why many of us will not go home for the holidays to a Publix commercial. We won't go home to that sentimental, idealized experience of family. A few weeks ago, I preached on the theme of the crushed spirit in Proverbs. And it was the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And I was nervous, I was a little concerned that that was too much of a downer. Entering into this season of supposed festivity and celebration. But I had multiple conversations with many of you who affirmed the timing of that topic. Because isn't there something about this season that aggravates old wounds? Isn't there something about this season that heightens our sense of loneliness, our sense of loss, our anxiety, and our our fear? Do you know why that is? It's because creation is dysfunctional. It's because this world does not work the way that it should as a result of humanity's rejection of God. I was talking to another pastor uh, in town recently, and we were talking about how busy this time of year is. And it, it is busy for people in ministry, not just because of the scheduled events, but because of the unexpected needs that tend to arise. He put it succinctly, people like to die in December. It's because creation is dysfunctional. It's because the world doesn't work the way that it should. And so this poetry teaches us to expect It teaches us to expect that we will step into life and life will raise questions in us like, how long? How long will you remain hidden, God? Where, God, is your love? The saints in heaven. Right? We think of heaven as... As, as the ending of all our problems. All the problems are over. All our concerns are over. With no more issues. No more pain in heaven. But read the book of Revelation. The saints in heaven. People who have been martyred. 
for their faith. They are before the throne of God. And what are they doing? Are they placidly strumming their harps as if on an an eternal high? No, they are crying out, how long? They are crying out the music of this psalm. How long, God? Until you make it right. This poetry teaches us to expect the pain of a dysfunctional world. But wait a second. Isn't Christmas supposed to fix that? Didn't Jesus come to remove God's wrath and restore God's love? Yes, but he's not done yet. He's not done yet. Jesus has come, but he has not come again. And so even those who belong to him sing this song. How long? Where is your love? And I think this is helpful, not only because it teaches us to expect those questions, but because it teaches us to articulate those questions. As one scholar said about this text, darkness and disorder are appropriate subjects for discourse with God. Loneliness, pain, Sorrow, confusion are appropriate topics of conversation with God. Are they a part of your conversation with Him? Do you speak with God in this way? This song teaches us to celebrate Christmas. By expressing our sorrow, our genuine sorrow and loss to God. Now, thanks pastor. Christmas has just got a little bit less merry. (laughs) How typically Presbyterian. (laughs) Thanks a lot. What, what, where's the holiday cheer, right? What, what about all these words that are on our coffee mugs and on our ornaments on our trees? Words like joy and peace and hope. Where is that? Where's the holiday cheer? Well, let's stay a few more moments here in Psalm 89 and find that this poetry not only lowers our expectations, but raises them. This poetry raises our expectations. Please notice this language. While this poetry teaches us to expect, it does not teach us to accept. It teaches us to expect the pain of a dysfunctional creation under God's judgment, but it does not teach us to accept that. This is not the poetry of resignation. This is not Eeyore saying, well, I thought thought everything was going to go poorly, and it did. Oh, well. No, this isn't resignation. 
This isn't acceptance. This is passionate, aggressive longing. This isn't just honest sorrow. It is intense desire. This isn't, okay, everything's messed up. That's just the way it is. No, this is, God, everything is messed up. Make it right. Make it right. Do something about it. Intervene. Now, where does that come from? Where does that longing, where does that desire, where does that ability to speak to God in that way come from? It comes from His love. It comes from God's love. Remember, Psalm begins singing about God's steadfast love. It ends asking questions about God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love. Steadfast love is two words in English. It is one one little but hugely significant word in Hebrew. It is God's hesed, which isn't primarily about feelings. That word isn't primarily about God's affectionate feelings. God has talked about as having affectionate feelings, but that word isn't primarily about affectionate feelings. That word hesed, steadfast love, is primarily about promise. God's love in Scripture is defined by concrete covenant commitments. I will be with you. I will be for you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will put a descendant of David on the throne, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And that descendant will be there forever. That is God's steadfast love. His love is His promises and His commitments to His people to renew blessing in and through Him to bring about the renewal of the whole world. That is God's steadfast love. And so the poet sees the descendant of David walking out of the city defeated and disgraced And it awakens his longing. He knows the promises of God. The covenant that God has made with his people. And he says, wait a second. This is not what steadfast love looks like. This is not what God keeping his promises looks like. And so he cries out. Where is your steadfast? Fast love. Where is your promise to be near to us? Where is your promise to put a son of David on the throne forever and ever? This longing, this desire emerges from the promises of God. Now what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with our expectations in Christmas? Well, the tensions and and the questions of this psalm, they continue to echo throughout the Old Testament. In Isaiah, he picks them up. 
And he begins to talk about a, a coming, a new son of David, a new king. But he calls that son, that king, a servant. And he says that servant will not only rule, that servant will not escape the suffering of Psalm 89. He will enter it. That servant, though he is innocent, will be rejected, despised, crushed. He will bear the stripes that God's people deserve. He will bear the iniquities, the sins that brought on the wrath of God. And Isaiah says that servant will do that. In order to remove God's wrath. And to reveal and even expand the steadfast love of God. That leads to a new creation. And then of course the New Testament takes all of those expectations. And puts them on Jesus. Jesus who was born into grief. What happened at his birth? Not just the celebration of the angels and the shepherds, but Herod, the Jewish representative of Roman rule, heard about the potential of a rival king, and he began to indiscriminately murder Jewish baby boys. Jesus was born into grief. And he lived out throughout his life that title, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was rejected. He was mocked. And then on the cross, he bore the stripes. He bore our iniquities, our sins. And he lifted up a song. That sounded a lot like Psalm 89. He lifted up the question, not how long, not where, but why, my God? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you hidden your face from me? Jesus, though innocent, did not escape the suffering of Psalm 89. He entered it. And why did he enter it? He entered it to remove God's wrath. And to reveal God's steadfast love. Do you see how this raises our expectations? Do you see what we should long for? Do you see how this psalm lifts up our desires and points them to Jesus? The one who suffers the wrath of God in order to reveal the eternal, steadfast love of God. You know, some of you, maybe you'll go home to a Publix commercial Christmas. Maybe it will be ideal. Maybe it will be beautiful and peaceful and tranquil and full of happiness. But isn't there a moment? Isn't there a moment 
Even after that perfect Christmas, when all the gifts are opened, or maybe when it's time to take the decorations down, isn't there a moment when you think or you feel, is that it? Is it over? Isn't it? Shouldn't there? Shouldn't it? Wasn't there one more gift? Isn't there more? You know, we could see that as a sinful discontentment, and maybe there's a little bit, bit of that there. But you know what I think is also there, deep within us, is a holy dissatisfaction, because we should want more. We should want more, not more stuff. But more of those words that we put on our coffee cups and our tree ornaments. Joy. Peace. Hope. We should want more. We should want a world made right by the steadfast love of God. We should want an unending joy and delight in and with Him. And we should want that not only because I think that desire is in us, but because Jesus has begun to accomplish that. Jesus has begun to accomplish the joy the peace for which we were made. But he's not done yet. He's not done yet. And so one of the ways that we celebrate him during this time, and hopefully more than during this time, is that we celebrate him by longing for him. By realizing that there are desires deep within us for which we were made that are not met and will not be met yet. Desires that cannot be met by family and presence and the festive time. But desires that should direct us towards Jesus towards what He has done, towards what He will do. We celebrate Him. We worship Him. Not only by gratefully receiving what He has done, but by longing for His continued work in us. By longing for the completion of that work in the resurrection. When he comes and makes all things new. W.H. Auden, in his long-form poem that he wrote for Christmas called For the Time Being, he said, what is real about all is that each of us is waiting. What is real about all is that each of us is waiting. In Psalm 89 as a Christmas poem, directs us towards what, or better, who, we are waiting for. It directs 
our eyes, our hearts, with our sorrow, and with our longings. To the revelation of God's steadfast love. And the one who came. And the one who will come again. Sirens during silent night are entirely appropriate. Because that teaches us that while, yes, we should sing with gratitude and celebration about the dawn of God's redeeming grace in Jesus, we should also mourn the continuing darkness. And we should cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray.